is a well-known, um, beloved psalm throughout church history, Psalm 91. Uh, just a couple of examples of that. The psalm is traditionally in the Orthodox Church been used um, as the opening psalm for their funeral services. In the ancient world, in ancient Christianity, it was uh, a common practice apparently with many Christians to recite, uh, to pray this psalm uh, every day. Uh, before I read here, I just want to point out the basic structure of the psalm to look for as we read. I just want to encourage you to listen for the pronouns as I read. So the first two verses begins with I. The psalmist is speaking and saying, this is what I believe about my God. Uh, and then the bulk of the psalm, verses 3 through 13, changes to the second person pronouns, you, uh, in the sense that uh, this is the trust that you can have too. Uh, your God, what God will be to you. Uh, you can be free from fear. And then the end of the psalm, the last few verses, it goes back to I, but with a different speaker. Uh, God, as it were, steps in, and he is the speaker at the end of the psalm, uh, giving his own personal assurance to those who know him. Uh, kids, you can listen to this psalm for um, dangers that are listed. Uh, some of them animals or other things. Um, you can also listen to the promises of God. You have one of the uh, children's bulletins that it lists some of those promises in this psalm. Let's hear God's holy and valuable word together. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God and my trust. For it is he who delivers you from the snare of the trapper, from the deadly pestilence, who will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield, a bulwark. You will not be afraid of the terror by night, of the arrow that flies by day, of the pestilence that stalks in darkness, or the destruction that lays waste at noon. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not approach you. You only look on with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. For you have made the Lord my refuge, even the Most High, your dwellingless. No evil will befall you, nor will any plague come near your tent. For he will give his angels charge concerning you, to guard you in all your ways, that they will bear you up in their hands, that you do not strike your foot against the stone. You will tread upon the lion, the cobra, the young lion, and the serpent you will trample down. Because he has loved me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him securely on high, because he has known my name. He will call upon me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With a long life I will satisfy him and let him see my salvation. This psalm has been particularly a comfort uh, over millennia to those facing uh, plagues, uh, diseases, uh, mentions them several times in this psalm. Uh, in Charles Spurgeon's commentary on the psalms, um, he gives a, a testimony from his life relative to Psalm 91. Um, it was 1854, it was uh, Charles Spurgeon's first year in the pastorate in London. Uh, he was only 19. Uh, but the saying it was also that uh, cholera, was called Asiatic cholera, was, was tearing through London uh, and beyond. Um, and he was he writes constantly visiting the 
those who are sick in this congregation. And we had a, a large congregation, a few thousand people, but uh, even so, it's incredible that he reports that almost daily he was visiting a new grave. <laughs> and he writes that after a time, understandably, he says, I felt my burden was heavier than I could bear. And he was walking home through London one day on, on the way home from yet another funeral, and he noticed a piece of paper posted in the window shop. And the paper had Psalm 91, verse 9 and 10 uh, written on it, uh, which again is, For you have made the Lord my refuge, even the most high your dwelling place. No evil will befall you, nor will any plague come near your tent. And Spurgeon writes, The effect of my heart was immediate. My faith appropriated the passage as its own. I felt secure, refreshed, and went on with my visitation of the dying in a calm and peaceful spirit. I felt no fear of evil. The providence that moved that tradesman to place those verses in his window, I gratefully acknowledge. In remembrance of its marvelous power, I adore the Lord my God. That's a neat testimony from Spurgeon about Psalm 91. We have, um, in some ways, uh, some affinity in the last couple of years with, with that experience in a way that we have, as Americans never have before. Not, um, not in the same degree uh, at all, uh, really not even, even close to what uh, Spurgeon was experiencing with cholera there in London. Um, but we are in, in the midst of some kind of pandemic, and uh, a year and a half ago, uh, many um, pastors preached on Psalm 91 uh, in, in light of that, and um, I thought it would be a good time, um, just in light of the fact that we're continuing um, to talk about and experience that constantly, even in our congregation, um, to think about that again. Many, many people are experiencing the last two years, new fears of doing uncertainties because of the pandemic and also um, because of uh, fallout from that, right? Just the polarizing opinions about it and responses and regulations from the government has uh, produced other fears and uncertainties and frustrations. And we need to think biblically about all of these things. How does, how does truth speak to our circumstances? Uh, how will the sovereign God who created and sustains the world have us think um, about pandemics or other challenges like that? Uh, what comfort and assurance is there in His Word? It's, it's helpful and, and good to have testimonies uh, like Charles Spurgeon's, like the one that I just shared. But in Psalm 91, we have not only also the testimony of, of King David. And his experience saying, God is my trust, he's been faithful to me, you too can have this trust. But these are the words and testimony of, of Jesus Christ too. David typified, in a theological sense, he symbolized the life and the faith of the king who is to come, King Jesus. And Jesus was the one who suffered through all the hardships of this life with, with perfect faith, um, not without struggle. Uh, but with trust in the Father, even through death. Um, and in his resurrection, he testifies to you through his word here, as the psalm begins, about my God in whom I trust. And the application to you in one part, verse 5, you will not be afraid. You cannot be afraid. Uh, let's look first uh, on your outline there, number one. And um, despite all the amazing promises of this song that we'll get to in a minute, um, 
the fact that this song testifies to the reality of fearful things. Uh, they're described and symbolized in a bunch of different ways in this song. Uh, if you heard some of the verse 3 as, as an animal trap, uh, compared to an animal trap. Verse 5, the terror of nighttime or an arrow flying at you. Imagine the fear of that. Verse 12, striking your foot on a stone, which is uh, an idiom. It's not literally meaning you know, tripping on a path or something, but it's idiomatic. It's something that stops you in, in your life journey, um, ends your journey. Uh, verse 13, uh, the, the illustration of lions and snakes as danger that we face. And multiple times, the psalm mentions uh, older words for deadly disease, pestilence, uh, plague. Um, of course, again, something that we're uh, facing in, in the last couple of years. The psalm is beloved for its promises of, of protection and care, but whatever those promises are, whatever they mean, we can be clear that the psalm is also assuming all kinds of trouble, all kinds of various trouble and fearful things. And one thing that, that many of these things listed have in, have in common um, is that they're unseen. That they're things that you can't guard well against. Um, that adds to the fear of them. There, there are things that don't fit in that category. Of course, there's the proverbial, you know, getting hit by a bus, you can avoid that, right? If you uh, don't step in the wrong place at the wrong time, you look both ways, right? You can avoid certain diseases if you cook your meats properly and that, and that kind of thing. But um, this all speaks of traps. And the disease that stalks in the night, verse 6, or snakes that jump out unseen, that, 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 that they add to the fear factor that these are things that we can't see. They're invisible dangers. But this is also part of the comfort of this song, because God sees all these things. They're not a surprise to him. Um, you think about it, you don't even, you and I don't even know all the things that we should be afraid of. Um, how often you might have been in danger. Just think about how many countless times God may have kept you from an accident that you didn't know, or from a microscopic uh, disease, or some other danger that you don't even know you were near. So the psalm describes trouble and fears in, in many and varied ways. But secondly, under outline, now the psalm also presents the protecting providence of God in many and varied uh, ways. Verse 1 is a shelter or a shade. Think of the, the relief of shade on a, on a blazing hot day. And having grown up and, and lived most of my life in the humid east, I've been appreciating the efficiency of the shade. Perhaps, um, the kind of relief that communing with God and knowing his, his promises provides. Verse 2, he's a refuge, a fortress. You put yourself in the ancient world, or in, in medieval times even, um, you know, if you had the biggest, biggest castle around, you think of the confidence that you could have retreating into that, into that fortress um, if there was some kind of threat. Verse 4 at the end speaks of God as a shield and a bulwark. A bulwark is a big defensive wall, picture of medieval wall with, with battlements on it. Um, a shield and a bulwark, and God is, is both ends of the defensive spectrum here. The little shield, uh, personal, mobile, uh, also a, a large, unmovable defense, a bulwark. I think part of the point of these, all these varied um, descriptions of God's providence 
is that God's protection, God's care, meets you wherever you are. Uh, in your particular needs, your particular circumstances. Some of the imagery in the psalm may be more meaningful to some people than others. Um, a very different image of, of God's care is in the beginning of verse 4. He will cover you with his pinions, all work for feathers, and under his wings you may seek refuge. There are the images of a, a motherly warm protection of a motherly uh, mother bird. Uh, I was reading this a couple days ago a book on counseling that was pointing out what you probably noticed before, but I hadn't thought a lot about is in the Gospels, Jesus' responses to people who come up with a question or a problem or a need or something, his responses are so varied that they're very unpredictable. Often we, we wonder, why is Jesus responding this way? Why is he treating this person so different than the last person? And the, the point that he made in the book was that he's, he's treating each person individually. He knows them, what they need, where they need to be challenged, where they need to be comforted, and so on. I think the psalm speaks to that here. But the promises of the psalm become more direct. They, they escalate even. As we move to verse 5, the promise here is you will not be afraid of all the things that fall. That's quite a, a statement. Uh, verse 7, a thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand in your right hand, but it shall not approach you. That's quite a promise as well. Verse 10, no evil will befall you, nor will any plague come near your tent. These are incredible statements and promises. If we don't understand these correctly, what's meant here, we could be left in despair. I think that God's word doesn't really comport with our reality. Right? Because we can read those in a way that certainly doesn't, right? We might think, am I supposed to believe that God will never let me experience physical sickness or danger or things that are described here? But we all know that's not reality. So let's, let's consider carefully, biblically, what's, what's being promised here. Um, so thirdly, third, three, four, and five in your outline, three questions I'm going to ask of this psalm, particularly in light of these incredible promises. So first is, what, what is being promised? Uh, this, these promises cannot mean that we will never experience pain or disease or attacks or even death. Um, we can prove that from the experience of the psalmists. Um, and many of the psalms, you can prove that from the teaching and expectation of all the scriptures. I'll prove that in a moment from the interaction of Jesus with this psalm in the New Testament, uh, in Matthew. Um, but what do these promises mean? What do they point to? I want to, want to state this in a few different ways. You see uh, several blank bullet points there under that point. Uh, first, we can say that, that what this psalm is saying is that nothing will happen to you outside of God's sovereign will and purpose. Nothing will happen to you outside of God's sovereign will and purpose, whether to your family, to your job, or disease, or persecution, or death. And that's seen in part in the names for God in this psalm. So in verse 1, God is called the Most High and the Almighty. He's the Most High. There's, there's nothing higher. There's no authority or power that's higher than God uh, that you could face. You probably know the Hebrew that's behind uh, the Almighty or God Almighty. It's Shaddai. Right? 
God Almighty, El Shaddai. Uh, the, the root connection of the word Shaddai is, is debated. It's not known for sure. There are a number of words that seem to be related. Um, the top two options by far uh, that, that scholars uh, put forth are uh, one is destroy, in the sense that Shaddai would mean the destroyer. Um, in the sense that he is the ultimate power who destroys everything else. He's uh, like he's the top of the food chain. Right? Kids who understand the food chain is the, the top of the food chain is the animal like wolves or bears that can walk around with no, no fear of being attacked or eaten, except for humans. Uh, they, they're indestructible in the animal world. But, um, the other word that could be related here is mountain. And, and the idea would be Again, God is higher, greater than everything else around. Uh, the connection points to God's superlative nature. Derek uh, Kidner comments, these titles cut every threat down to size. Well, whatever fear or threat that we discuss, even if it's like nuclear war or global pandemic, um, God is higher, he's more mighty. So nothing will, nothing can happen without God's permission. The permission of Most High, El Shaddai, uh, for his purposes. Uh, secondly, we can state what this psalm is saying is that as one who belongs to God, nothing can separate you from your relationship to God. Or nothing can separate you from your identity in Christ or from your place in God's household. Or we, we could end that, that sentence a number of ways. But look at verse 10 again. The promise here is no evil will befall you nor will any plague come near your tent. How should we understand that verse, that promise? I want to suggest that the key to understanding that is to understanding what your tent is. Your, your, the promise is that nothing will happen to your tent or come near your tent. What, what is your dwelling place that's all that verse 10 is talking about? Well, verse 9 tells us very clearly. Look at the verse right before. You have made the Lord your dwelling place. The Lord is your dwelling place. That's the tent that the psalm is talking about. Your, your relationship to God. Your place in his house. Your, your having his promises. His, his relationship to you. Nothing will change that. Uh, nothing can touch or uh, tear that apart or tear you away from that even if you get sick, or even if you go to prison, or even if you die, it doesn't change your place in your relationship to God, your place in His tent. I think one of the places in the scriptures where this is uh, this this kind of promise is made most most clearly and most powerfully is Jesus teaching in Luke chapter 21, verse 18, where Jesus famously says to his disciples, the twelve disciples, not a hair of your head will perish. Similarly, incredible promise, um, maybe unbelievable promise if, if we don't understand it rightly, but that's what Jesus says, not a hair of your head will promise. What does Jesus mean? Is he telling his disciples, everything will be okay, nothing bad will happen to you? Now, that was, every, not, not a hair of your head will perish, it's verse 18. Verse 17 says this, you will be betrayed, even by parents, brothers, relatives, and friends, they will put some of you to death, and all men will hate you because of me. So not a hair of your head will perish. In other words, Jesus saying, telling his disciples, you will suffer for my sake. You will even die. But you won't perish. 
you, I will keep you as mine. You will live ultimately. Not even a hair of your relationship to me, not even a hair of God's promises to you, will be out of place through all of it. Uh, we can compare what Paul says in Romans 8 and 28. Again, familiar words um, that we quote sometimes out of context. He says, God works all things together for good. Sometimes that's quoted as if all things are good. So we to call all things good. But what are the all things as Paul defines them in that passage? He defines them as persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, swords, death, and demons. But none of these things will separate you from the love of God. And Jesus, God works all things. Similar to the, the point of Psalm 91. Uh, thirdly, third way we could say what this psalm is teaching is that God's providential care of you is comprehensive and exhaustive. His care of you is comprehensive and exhaustive. Uh, nothing is excluded. Not uh, night and day, it speaks of all time. Uh, not the most extreme or dire circumstances. Again, verse 7 speaks of uh, a thousand people falling around you, even if it was ten, tens of thousands of people dying all around you. From what? Verse 6, from this plague that's, that's spreading. Um, even that doesn't change God's providence for you at all. It's so exhaustive, it acts in ways that you can't see, that you don't know. Verse 11 and 12, he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will bear you up in, your, in their hands. God commands angels for your protection. How does that work? What does that look like? We, we don't know and we shouldn't speculate. Um, about 15 years ago, my former pastor and I brought a bunch of college students out to Colorado to ski for a few days and we stayed at the Westminster Church. And during that time, our, our van broke down and um, called tow truck, and I rode with the tow truck driver, towing the van to a garage, and we had a great discussion about the Lord and faith, and uh, as we were driving along, this, this tow truck driver, he says, oh, did you see that? And he's pointing up at the streetlight, because I was passing him, he says it again, but he's there once again. And, and he explained to me, he's been seeing this lately, that the streetlights flicker occasionally when he drives under him. He's Certain this is evidence of his guardian angel flying over the tow truck with him and somehow interfering with the light. And so you see what's going on every once in a while. And, you know, his, the guy's faith in the promise of Psalm 91 is commendable, even if it's speculation about streetlights that are perhaps not. Um, but we, that should be part of our confidence, part of our trust in God's comprehensive, exhaustive, even unseen care. That is further proof of, of what this all means and what it doesn't mean. Uh, do you remember, maybe if you have a, a study Bible you can cheat, but do you remember who in Matthew quotes from Psalm 91? Who quotes Psalm 91? Satan, yeah. yeah Satan quotes Psalm 91. It's one of his proof texts. He tries to use with Jesus, right? And his temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. He takes Jesus to a high place. Tells him, jump off. You know Psalm 91. God has given angels charge to keep you. If you want to strike your foot on a stone, should be safe. What was Jesus' response? Did he say, oh yeah, that's right, it should be safe, should be fine? 
No, Jesus completely rejected that interpretation of Psalm 91. Right, these, these promises do not mean that no harm can come to us in any sense. They, they certainly don't mean that we can act recklessly in the face of danger uh, and expect, expect safely, put God to the test in that way, uh, which is what, what Satan was encouraging Jesus to do. It's really interesting to think about the fact that Jesus re- totally rejected that interpretation of Psalm 91, and then when Jesus tests his, his starvation and his temptation were over there in the wilderness, what did Jesus do? What did God the Father do? He sent angels immediately, right, to care for Jesus. And that was one of two occasions on which God the Father sent these angels visibly to care for Jesus. <coughs> This may be even more striking, though, to reflect on the fact that uh, the Father did not send angels to Jesus on the cross uh, in his greatest hour in one sense. Uh, he did not save him uh, from death. That was uh, part of God's purpose. He did send them other times to, to cover him with his wings and to strengthen him, to assure him through it. That's the nature of these promises. It doesn't diminish them. Um, but fourthly, one other way we could state what, what is being taught in this psalm is that it points us to our ultimate victory. It points us to our ultimate victory. Look at verse 8. You will only look on with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Again, the psalm assumes that there are wicked people doing wicked things and painful things. But ultimately, you will only know justice. Uh, done in the end. Uh, verse 13 says, You will tread upon the lion and the cobra. The young lion and the serpent you will trample down. These are symbols of danger, symbols of the trampling of victory for God's people. Ultimately, in time, that the psalm assumes that this, is, this victory is not now. It, it's not already. But one day, you will, and in, in a sense, in that you are already victors. Right? In the, in the death and burial and resurrection and ascension and reign of Christ, your identity in Him, your citizenship in heaven, you are already victors. The decisive battle has been won. You know, picture of a, a town in the Old West hiring a sheriff to come and clean up the town and all the crime, bring justice. Um, you know, he's. When this person is named sheriff, he immediately has all the authority <coughs> and victory over the criminals in a sense. And yet it takes him time uh, to actually clean up the town and bring justice. That's not a perfect analogy. God can bring justice at any moment that, that he wishes. But he is working through the reign of Christ, um, working his gracious purposes and his perfect um, Whatever fears you face, the psalm says you are victors now already. You will one day see that in full. Uh, again, I think this is, this is one of Paul's points in Romans chapter 8. A familiar passage to us where he says, In all these things, again, what are these things? Not success and um, accomplishment and comfort and fame and things like that. It's famine and persecution and so on. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We are already <coughs> conquerors. Well, fourth and the second question I would ask uh, briefly of this psalm is if, if God is 
sovereign if nothing happens outside of his will, if Jesus has won the victory over sin and death, why would God allow fearful things like a pandemic or like a fallout from it or many other things that we might point to in our world? Three brief thoughts in response to that question as we consider the teaching of Scripture. And thinking again of our context, particularly in the last couple of years of, of illness or at least increased um, awareness and concern for illness in this pandemic. One, one answer to that question is simply that something like that reminds us of the greatest pandemic ever and ongoing, which is sin. That infects everybody. And the results of sin are universal. The, the death rate for sin is 100%. And we all experience that consequence in a fallen world. We ought to be humbled in remembering that what our sin has done to this world. And then be grateful that we'll never face the wrath of God for our sin. That the disease of sin will, will never reach its goal in us. If we belong to Jesus. Uh, secondly, a second answer is that it helps us to sympathize with the sufferings of others. It helps us to sympathize with the sufferings of others. Another way that we should be humble is recognizing that what we're facing in the last couple of years is only a, a tiny taste. Uh, it, it pales in comparison with what, how many people have suffered in history uh, in pandemics or wars or other things. It pales in comparison with how many people suffer. Today, around the world, uh, by God's grace, it seems that the vast majority of us, this, these circumstances the last couple of years will be merely disruptive and not, uh, not deadly. That's not to downplay the seriousness of it, uh, but perhaps God will use this new taste for us of the effects of sin to wake us to some degree from our cushy, self-indulged, materialistic American experience. Um, to recognize ways that many people suffer around the world every day, believers. Suffering war or hunger or Ebola and raging in Africa for many years, um, persecution, many other things. A third answer is that God perhaps used pandemic or things like that to expose our sources of false confidence. <coughs> Perhaps he has. Ask, ask yourself, what, what is it that really makes you feel secure? When, when you don't have worries and cares and anxieties, why is that really? Maybe your confidence is in the economy, or the economy's doing well. Well, that's been um, pretty shaky in the last couple of years at, at various times. Uh, maybe it's in when you're entertained and distracted. You know, we've experienced particularly last year, times where a lot of our entertainments and distractions were cut off and canceled and uh, closed and that kind of thing. Uh, maybe it's in health. Of course, that's been threatened in new ways. It's in education. You know, we've experienced times when schools are closed and education's been poor, probably. Maybe it's in political stability. Um, that's certainly decreased in the last couple of years. More polarized and more upheaval there. The message of the psalm is your circumstances do not determine your security. If you feel secure because things are going well, they're comfortable, uh, you're, you're living a lie. And God is gracious at 
triumphs to force us into seeing and to really believing that. We might ask after a particular struggle or after a pandemic or something like that, how, you know, are you more or less secure now than you were before at that time? And the answer, whatever the circumstance has been, is neither. These things don't determine uh, your security. So I want to ask uh, number five, finally, uh, who, who enjoys this security? Who enjoys um, the promises and the, the confidence of this psalm? Um, it's a necessary question because part of the answer is not everyone. Not everyone. These assurances and comforts and protections are only for those who have a personal relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Who confess their helplessness as a sinner and offender against God and thrown themselves, themselves on the mercy of Jesus. Received his death on the cross in their place for their sin. God's loving provision for them. The final verses of this psalm describe a person who has this assurance by faith. It describes what's involved in trusting God. Uh, as God becomes the speaker now in these last three verses, he describes the person who, who has this confidence. Uh, verse 14, God speaking, Because he has loved me, therefore I will deliver him. But those who love God, you are those who have loved God. And you respond to him in, 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 um, in love and, and the assurances that are given. But the verse goes on. Secondly, I will set him securely on high because he's known my things. Those who enjoy these promises are those who know God. You are those who know God, who, who he is as most high, as El Shaddai, who protects you perfectly and you ought to know him more. Then verse 15 says, describes this person further. You will call upon me, and I will answer him. This is a person who loves God, who knows God, and who calls upon God. Who has communion with God in prayer, takes his troubles to God, and acknowledges his dependence on God. The, the, the character of this person is also seen in the very beginning of this psalm. It's he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High, and abides in the shadow of the Almighty. This is one who dwells and abides in the shadow and the shelter of God, of El Shaddai. Just think about the difference between dwelling and abiding and just sort of visiting. Um, you might occasionally be found in a certain place in the mountains or at a particular coffee shop or a particular grocery store. You might, well, hopefully more often, be found at, at your place of work or uh, at school or something. About, there's something different about your home from all of those places. Right? It's where you abide. It's where your family is. Uh, it's where you eat meals and celebrate birthdays and holidays and make memories and where you rest each night. And it's more defining of who you are, more of your identity is wrapped up in, in your home, where you abide. If someone asks you where you live, that's, that's the address that you give. And so I think this psalm is saying, even more so for the believer, your relationship to El Shaddai, your place in his house, that's your address. That's your home. So who enjoys the security of this psalm? It's, it's the one who really is 
he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High. If you really consciously live there, you will enjoy God's shade, as it were. Verse 5, you will not be afraid. That's, that's difficult. Uh, if God's house is more of a retreat for you, or vacation, or um, an errand, or somewhere you stop by, then you cannot expect the full, uh, full security of those who abide. Again, Satan quoted Psalm 91 to Jesus. Satan believed Psalm 91. Satan knows El Shaddai. Uh, he knows who he is, but he doesn't trust. He doesn't he doesn't live there. Right? Uh, James chapter 2 explained that the demons are orthodox believers in El Shaddai. But they choose not to live there, to live with him, to abide, to serve and worship and love this gracious God. So this is your address. Uh, this is God's promise to you. Uh, his word to the end of this psalm, and we Turn the third person to the second person. He said, I will be with you. I will rescue you and honor you. With a long life, I will satisfy you and let you see my salvation. Let's pray and thank God for this word. Father in heaven, we thank you for Psalm 91. Amazing promises that are here. We thank you for the honest. Um, acknowledgement of dangerous and fearful things that we experience, and, and the great confidence that we can have that um, nothing will come near the tent of our relationship, our security, and our life in you forever, Christ, who is our resurrection. Pray that you would give us that trust and faith increasingly today and in the coming days. Pray this in his name, for his sake. Amen.